Welcome to The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston. Now the dust has well and truly settled on this year's transcontinental race. I think the dust has more than settled. I think um, everyone's had a chance to have a good bath and probably sensations are, are returning to the rider's fingers uh, right about now as, uh, as, as we are in um, early October looking back to a race which um, took place in um, the end of July, beginning of August. For those of you who haven't been listening to The Bike Show for the last uh, two episodes, the transcontinental race is a fabulous race uh, from Belgium to Turkey over um, some of the biggest mountains, well, all of the pretty much the biggest mountains of the European continent, uh, 4,000 kilometres or uh, near enough. And the race is non-stop and the riders must look after themselves along the way. Um, there's no uh, support uh, provided um, or even allowed. And the, the man who dreamt up this um, beautifully simple yet eternally fascinating bike race is sitting beside me. His name is Mike Hall. Welcome back to the bike show, Mike. Hi, Jack. How was it? From our point of view, uh, it, was, it was hectic as always, just a long summer trip uh, to Turkey and back for us, and, uh, but, but this year's race was um, exciting again for us. We never really know quite how people are going to tackle uh, the particular challenges, and I think that always, that's always makes it interesting. When we think we know what's going to happen, it might, it might be that it's boring. <laughs> Well, let's go through the, uh, the the very basics. I mean, uh, on the last show, uh, Gareth Baines, who's um, working on your team, uh, and I reviewed where everybody was, and um, there were no surprises. Uh, Christoph Alligate extended his lead and came in in a, a stunning time. Eight days, 15 hours and two minutes, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, we were kind of hoping it wouldn't happen quite like that again. But um, I, I think once... Well, certainly once Josh had um, had dropped and um, a few other people, Bernd Paul and uh, James Hayden had had issues and Christoph had got really got that maybe a 12-hour lead. I, th- I think that's when people start looking at who's behind them rather than who's ahead and, and trying to catch up. And towards the end of the race, then that, those kind of leads just grow. Uh, so how is he so good? Or was it that the others, as you said experience trouble or is that part of the comparison between them there's the organization and there's the planning that goes into it he very rarely makes mistakes whereas other people might make mistakes daily i have seen christoph make the odd mistake not being able to find certain places but it's very rare and he normally responds by just riding harder and and not letting it bother him Um, but there's also and I think, and I think I've experienced this myself when racing. If, if you've got not so much an expectation of uh, of winning, because you, you've got to be careful about expecting things, but if you've got the the mind that if somebody else is doing something and you need to be ahead of that, and you really view it as you're there to win and nothing else is acceptable, then you kind of view that as needing to be put right as opposed to the the other guys may maybe they're looking at Christoph thinking he's he's the guy to beat and they're maybe not putting themselves in that expectation of winning already from the start and this is how when the race expands into eastern europe and these gaps grow people people almost accept their place in where they think they are in the race so Christoph coming in he'll feel, he'll feel the pressure he'll feel the expectation on him to win but he'll also put an expectation on him to win so when he looks at everybody else, where everybody else is, he'll feel he needs to be ahead of them. Whereas the other guys might be thinking, 
well I'm not I'm not there yet I'm not Christoph and you could say mentally that's half the battle um, you know it's that, it's that confidence of, of feeling that, like you're in the right place in the race for you and looking at his um, his tracking data, he had a very regular schedule of when he stopped to take a rest and when he was riding. Whereas you look at some of the other riders and it was a bit more sporadic or almost random in some cases. Whereas he, it seemed almost like clockwork, he would stop for two or three hours and, um, and then carry on. Yes, and again, I think that shows his confidence. Um, it shows his confidence that he's not going to ride somebody else's race and uh, let anybody else um, sort of put him off um, with what they're doing so he didn't need to be uh, for example first to control one he, he was in the end but um, there were some guys ahead of him for, for part way he wasn't going to blast off on, on, on the night uh, on day one uh, and try and get ahead of everybody else um, he very much had his own plan and, and stuck to it if you're hearing a few noises off here, we are sitting um, outside in the autumn sunshine. There's quite a lot of wind around. We're at, we're at um, Irwood, which is on the Wye Valley, kind of equidistant um, between where Mike and I live, and we rendezvoused here. So if, uh, if you hear the odd uh, car, tree rustle or dog bark, that's what it is. Don't worry, we're not, uh, we're not in the middle of Serbia about to be set upon by um, hounds. Behind Christoph, there were some fascinating races. It wasn't like a procession with everybody kind of uh, spread 100 kilometres apart. There were was, there was some great tussles going on for the, uh, for the minor places. Yeah, I, I found um, Neil Phillips's ride particularly interesting because there were, there were some fairly long stops there and there were a lot of people leapfrogging each other and going a bit faster here and going a bit slower there. And he, he was a very strong rider, but it was stopping an awful lot more than... Uh, Christoph, for example, and and to come through with a strong finish there, I wonder if he were to come back with the same um, confidence of, of putting that ride down. Whether he'd he'd look to try and minimise some of his stops a little bit more, because he's certainly riding strong enough there. And uh, we saw him maybe overtake, maybe drop down to sixth or seventh place um, to come through and finish second. Uh, James Hayden as well, really strong finish from him uh, to come through. You know, he had the, the um, quite a period in uh, Clermont-Ferrand where uh, he saw the doctor, and then we had a chat with him about um, how, how he was going to start again uh, or continue from there. And he must have been stopped for well over a day in that, and he rode himself back into fourth place. Because uh. he was quite ill at the first control, wasn't he? He had a bad chest infection. He was kind of considering putting out. He was, yeah. He um, he had yeah chest infection that he'd had before, I believe. Um, saw the doctor there, um, and then we had a meeting. He brought us his his, his idea of what he's going to do, and uh, and his doctor's note and everything, and, and he started again. So and he went from something like where was he in the nineties? when he set off or, or even further back but he was he, he basically passed almost the entire field as he headed east to end up in fourth place yeah that's right when i heard that he'd got to switzerland to grindelwald and said to the um, control staff there that he was he was going to ride himself into the top 10 i was i was skeptical uh, i must admit i was going to say well he's, he's certainly a fighter you know i'll keep an eye on this but you know i don't want him i didn't, didn't want him to set himself expectations he couldn't get and uh, yeah, 
we saw we saw him do it. So that was. And did he, did you have to give approval as the race organizer for the medication that he took? Do you have a system where you control these kinds of things? Is there is there anti-doping? I mean, there's a lot of talk about therapeutic use exemptions at the minute because of the uh, Fancy Bears hack of the World Anti-Doping Agency, and it's all come out about Bradley Wiggins taking a lot of these cortisone jabs just before his big races um, under this therapeutic use exemption uh, sort of permission. Is there is there doping at the uh, in on the transcontinental? Well, bikepacking races sprung from the the want of people to have races which were just between people and unsanctioned, and I guess we're we're kind of moving on from that a little bit now. But there is no sanctioning body for unsupported uh, endurance races, um, so so it comes down really to uh, the race direct each race director having their own view and their own judgment on it. So um, in that in that situation James has done the right thing we ask everybody to come to self-validate themselves as being fit to ride and to um, provide a doctor's note to say they're fit in the start Um, but also when they have an issue on the race like that then really if they're pulling if they were going to withdraw from the race or they've been they've needed to um, seek medical assistance that they re- need to re- reinstate that doctor's note. So that that sort of um, seeing the local doctor there and having that med- medical prescription that he had, he did the right thing and came to us and talked to us about it. And he was clearly, we, we saw him, he wasn't in a good state when he got to control one. So we need to be pragmatic about this because this is a, an amateur race which is, which is surely growing and it's something we're going to have to think more and more about. But we're not competing for million-dollar prizes yet. So, um, are, are there any drugs that might help you in the transcontinental? I mean, the uh, sleep deprivation stuff. I mean, the, those tank commanders in World War Two used to get amphetamines prescribed to them, didn't they? And uh, I guess EPO probably would be helpful. Or you know, once you got a bit worn out, is that something that you think about, talk about with other race directors of these kinds of races? The, the doping issue. It's it's come up, but um, I mean, we again we've got to be sort of pragmatic about the situation, and, and I, I think certainly within these races there are there are factors of organisation, uh, mental acuity, uh, and and behaviours which you can't necessarily dope. They're, they're judgments. So actually, good judgment and organisation are going to help you more. In, in this than pure athleticism um, that said certain things to keep you awake and on, on the pedals um, I don't believe they're of significant gains within this type of racing because as I say there, there's bigger factors at play you, you've essentially got sort of more to sort out and that only sorts out a very small part of it which is doing it so I don't think that if somebody w- w- were taking something which enhanced them physically that you couldn't compete with them. Uh, for example, we we had our first pro professional cyclist in the race this year and he finished 11th um, next to a few people who are sort of like you know, college students and um, just go on long trips for fun. So there's other, there's other things at play uh, to that end, but at the same time, we need to make sure that people believe the result um, because the more okay we 're not competing for big prizes, but um, this, this brings a sense uh, 
brings across a sense of who these people are and their achievements and we need to we're invested in that and we need to believe that that result is honest so it's something we do think more and more about and something that we are starting to plan for the future that might not be putting in you know controls as such yet uh, but but having having a faith in what people are doing is certainly high on our priorities so let's take a look at the overall shape of the race which is not just about the people at the, at the front competing for the uh, the win and the and the top 10 um how many people finished what proportion of people finished and, and, and was that satisfying to you because um sometimes you know if, if only i think one year you had not really very many finishers and it it's a little bit a little bit sad that all these people had kind of <laughs> failed um and you, you but yet you don't want everyone to be marching in in a, in a nice procession you want it to be hard enough that not everybody makes it and how does this how does this one compare to to previous rides and and, and the general shape of the the route i was quite pleased this year uh, i think the numbers were were about right we we tweaked it a little bit the year before we made it quite a bit more challenging uh, a lot of people rose to that challenge but it, it was i wouldn't want to made it any harder it was almost quite an exclusive party at the end i'd certainly have it much more that way around rather than reducing the, the difficulty to to kind of give more people a, a nice warm satisfying feeling um, this year we had 138 finishers from 216 starters so that's about two-thirds making it yeah and i think about maybe two-thirds of those who did finish finished within the um the time frame to make make it to the party as well and the route itself all that climbing because there was a ton of climbing this time one of the biggest sort of strategic things that the the, the control three did in in the dolomites this year was to bring people out of the po valley um because that's not an exciting or particularly beautiful place to ride a bike uh, it might be exciting but for the wrong reasons there's a lot of truck routes through there there's a lot of um commuter belt uh, and that sort of area so you do get uh, very busy peak peak periods in the traffic and a lot of people there are have other concerns um rather than driving around beautiful mountain roads so the mountain roads are harder to harder to ride up but there you, you don't find so many trucks in them and, and that sort of thing so that was um that was a change to make sure that we have the type of cycling that is is good cycling um and a, and a good race there clearly are risks that every every rider faces talking to Stuart burney um before he set off on his first one he, i asked him what, what his biggest fear was and i thought he tell me something about the cycling he said just no just getting run over by a truck something is going to happen whether it's someone suffering hypothermia on a mountain pass a crash you as race organizer putting on this adventurous risky exciting dangerous event what are your thoughts about that do you think it's inevitable and how will it affect the race will you get the authorities clamping down on you i mean what 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 are your concerns about that my immediate concerns is to make sure people know the risks and are happy to take them because i do the same thing when i go out when everyone goes out um so long as you're informed of the risk then you can choose whether you want to take it or not um so our obligation our duty is not to be negligent with that information and to make sure everybody understands we also 
uh, this year made sure that not only the racers who were signing up to um, the advisories of what they're about to do um, agree to those and, and, and take responsibility for themselves, but then we also contact the next of kin to say that they've been what this person signed up for themselves so that they can be in, informed and, and invested in that decision as well. So in terms of a in terms of a protocol, that's our first concern. Um, when anybody's doing anything that's exciting and dangerous, a lot of the time they're doing it for those reasons. Um, I, I ride my bike because long distances and do these things because it is some parts of some parts of it the danger is this part of the excitement and i i think for me it's my right to be able to put myself in that position as as much as anybody who does any risky activity place it has a right to place themselves at risk for that adventure and that will to live life really um, and i would fight for anybody else's right to, to be able to do that every year we change things to make things better where we see there's increased risk we try and reduce the risk and we try and reduce the risk without damaging the reasons for for the excitement of the race. Uh, so, like I said, we, we take the Po Valley out because it's not adding anything to the race. If we can avoid it, it's better. If, if somebody's going to have a crash on a mountain pass because they're descending too quickly, you know, they, first of all, they've got the responsibility for that and they can avoid it if they if they choose. But also, that's that mountain pass, that beautiful road, is part of what makes the event. Um, getting squashed by a truck isn't um, so so we do things like that we, we've moved away from Istanbul because they started building some new construction projects there a new airport a new bridge and a lot of those routes around which were which quieter were taken away from us so we felt that that was too too high risk than we were comfortable with and so do you think you'll be making significant changes for next year or are you settling on a, a, a kind of stable format that that works because the geography is is, is largely fixed. Yeah, you can't do infinite variations. I suppose you can change things slightly, but um, but you know a, a kind of mountainous route. I think I think there's still a lot we can do within the confines of where we're putting certain directions of things. Um, but there is there is also an option for us to completely go from one different side of Europe to another. Um, so I, I still do see in a you know uh, a list of options which is which. We could run the race for 20 years before they're exhausted. Um, so there's plenty, there's plenty of options to go at. But yes, it does, it, it does rather narrow your options in certain locations. But I, but I also believe that people who see the race they want to do some version of what they've seen, but different. Uh, so that sort of incremental change can can happen as well. Or we could move away to something radical and and come back. Um, we do have some fairly large changes for next year, although they might not be too radical. I'm excited about it, so that passes the first test. Yeah, I'm looking forward to sharing that with people next month. What makes the race for me, the race at the front is interesting um, and it's fascinating watching these guys and women, how fast they can ride their bikes all day and get by on so little sleep and just keep going. I just, I'm in awe at, at what they do on the, on their bikes, but some of the little stories, the little incidents, the little solutions that people um, find to, to, to the adversities along the way are, are incredible. That There was a broken fork. Um, one rider had a, a fork broke, which is just so evocative of what happened to Eugène Christophe, I think, in the 1911 Tour de France. 
and he uh, found a welder's shop and managed to get the fort welded back together and uh, and was on his way and that's wonderful stuff anything else that you particularly remember as as beautiful little vignettes from uh, from this year's race i do remember that seeing that um weld and and not thinking that it would probably make it to the end well i can think of a few things that stand out actually um a, a rider that um the second time in the race he rode the fixed gear uh, the year before the first rider to ride the, the race on a fixed gear he come back and he had uh, quite a nice trek up the mountains in the middle of the in the middle of the night he was over near um near the swiss parkour and for some reason took a took a a track up towards davos and uh, he was on some mountainside somewhere way away from the road there were a few people a little bit concerned about him but he got himself some sleep and sorted himself out in the morning well, the place to look is the um, is your website with the blog um, that was a terrific enhancement this year. Um, I, I think it was a, if not daily, then uh, certainly regular. Uh, every couple of days, there was a, a really good blog post pulling together all the social media streams and telling some of the stories of uh, of what happened along the way. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I managed to catch up with Emily Chapel, who um, was first in um, amongst the women and. Um, was able to ask her about her ride on the transcontinental. It's just being on the bike. And in some ways, I find it's very much like cycle touring. It's just with the volume turned up slightly. All you have to do is get up and ride your bike and keep eating and sleep when you need to. And that's what I do. And that's what I really like doing. And I realised towards the end of the race, I could totally handle it because there wasn't anything that was going to come up that wasn't what I'd done loads of times before. So from that point of view, yeah, it was fine. Well, when we spoke just before the beginning of the race, you didn't confess to the fact that you were you were in it to win it. Probably a bit of modesty and and um, you know a bit of sandbagging, I should think. But um, you did tell me earlier in the year when I came up to see you at your place in Mid Wales that you did need, want, desire, wish to win the transcontinental um, women's race, and you did. You must feel great. I do, and I did win, but. I think it's impossible to say with a race like this. Had different people entered, I might not have won. And had had the race gone differently for me, I might not have won. Because there are so many different factors. You know, Come on, Emily. You won. <laughs> you were great. You were amazing. You did a brilliant race. And you must. there must be a play. You can't just look back and somehow disqualify yourself because some imaginary people were in the race that weren't in the race you won you won okay 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 I won but next year I'm going to go for a top 10 place because I had all these conversations at the finish line with I think I had a chat with James Hayden and he was saying oh well done you know you won the women's category that's great and then we got into this conversation about how well you know there has to be a women's category because otherwise the women wouldn't win and you know uh, they could never compete against the men and I will never win a race against James Hayden or Christoph or someone like that, but I think I can do a heck of a lot better than I did. And I kind of want to show people that, you know, I can do a bit better than just winning a, a subcategory. And what was your position in the overall then? 30-something, was it? Or 20-something? No. I'm actually not sure. I haven't checked. Um, I know, I think initially I was about number 40, but I know they'll have done some time adjustments and maybe disqualified a few people, so it will change. And I haven't checked that yet. And I don't even know if they've released the overall um, listings. It's the same as I don't know how many miles I did. And that's one of the questions people always ask. And I feel like a bit of an idiot for not finding out. But I think um, 
I'm not going to say I'm not really happy that I won, but it was also just for me about the experience of being out there and doing it and trying really hard and being happy with how I've done. And I am happy with how I did. At the same time, I can see a lot of improvements that I need to make for next year. And finishing, actually, because that means a lot for everyone in the race, whether they're first or last. You know, it doesn't matter how fast you go. If you scratch, you've scratched and you scratched last year and I knew I knew I could sense the a real determination that you weren't going to scratch this year for one reason or another and you must be very satisfied that that you got to the end yeah there there were a few reasons during the race where I thought I might have to scratch it was never an immediate danger but the first couple of days my feet were very painful and I thought if this continues as it's going I'm not going to make it through the full two weeks but thankfully they settled down and I think that often happens and that's something that it helps to have done it before and realise that it takes you a few days just to settle in and eventually my feet Either they stopped hurting a bit or I just got over it. And then I haven't actually told anyone this really, but I had a really bad chest infection from about day three, which I think coincided unhappily with the Alps. And it was entirely my own fault because on the second night I slept down in a valley in France with all the mist and the cold air sinking. And I should have known that was a stupid idea. And I woke up with a cold. And I think the climb just after checkpoint three was particularly hard I felt like I was on about half lung capacity and I was coughing and wheezing the whole way and um, I thought you know that's probably not a good thing to have going on in the race and Juliana heard me breathing and rattling a bit and was a bit concerned because she had to pull out of a race with a lung problem and so I just kind of stopped breathing for a bit until I got away from her because I was determined that no one was going to say look Emily are you sure this is a good idea And the chest infection kind of sorted itself out, I think. I was less wheezy towards the end of the race and actually I was was better on the last day than on about the fifth. And also I got a sense that this tiredness built as as the race went on, as you would expect. But somehow at the end you came through something and you were almost no longer in a race. Were you just so far ahead of the people you were, the other women you were racing against or had you just sort of gone into some kind of state of grace where you were just enjoying being in the landscape and you didn't have the energy to kind of care about the race and you were just riding your bike? It was more of the latter. I think by the time I got through checkpoint four, I knew I was quite far ahead of the other women. Where's this? In, this is in Montenegro. Yeah, checkpoint four was Montenegro, a place called uh, Jabiak. Um, lovely little mountain town. So I stopped there, I had two pizzas and then carried on along one of the routes I planned. I had quite a few different route choices at that point. I planned three different routes and I chose the one I thought would take me on easier roads through more cities because my tyres were failing. As it turns out, nobody else went that way. So I had a little moment in this hotel on the Albanian border looking on Twitter and seeing someone say, oh, I hope Emily Chapel knows what she's doing because no one else has gone that way. And I just had this moment of, oh no, what have I done? Everybody's seeing me making this terrible mistake. And thought, well, I'm not going to let myself get worried about it now because I'm going to fall asleep in about 30 seconds. I'll think about it in the morning. So I fell asleep. And in the morning woke up and thought, well, I still have this problem, but I think I can just ride my way through it. And then just went on to have some of my best days ever on the bike. So that I spent a day riding through Albania uh, and just found some of the nicest roads I'd ever ridden on. 
And it felt like being off on one of my adventures on the bike. And I had sort of forgotten I was in a race. I think I'd almost got tired of this whole, oh, I'm in a race, there's a guy up ahead of me. Am I going to try and overtake him? Is he going to overtake me? Because I always felt this little sort of tension when I saw another rider. It was nice to see them. But then you were instantly thinking about, oh, you know, where am I in relation to him and all of that. And it felt like a break. And it felt like I'd run off on my own to do my own thing and was, you know, secretly having a great time. I worry a lot that I'm not really a racer. And at that point, I definitely wasn't. You know, I lost at least a day, I think. But I really was enjoying myself. I won't pretend it was deliberate to take a much longer route, but I had a really good time. And then I think it was, um, I think it was day 11. I crossed into Greece, maybe it was day 12, and had this lovely morning of speeding along these deserted Greek roads in the sunshine. And it was, you know, I'd been racing for over a week and I hadn't slept very much. And you'd really think by that point you would be wrecked. And I was so happy. And I was, I was riding along, and this is very silly, but I was, I was rehearsing the song I would sing on the final day, which was Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. And I was belting it out at the top of my voice, having a really good time. And also thinking, no, 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 let's save some voice because you've got to be singing this on the run into Chanakale. As it turns out, I wasn't in the mood at all by then. And I just thought, I don't want this to end. This isn't long enough. How am I going to find a longer event than this? Because I'm just getting into my stride now. And, yeah, we'll see what comes of that. If you don't know what we're talking about, we are talking about the Transcontinental Race, an extraordinary bike race all the way from Belgium to Turkey across um, the toughest mountain ranges in the European continent, almost 4,000 kilometres of riding and it's a race where every rider is on their own and without any form of external support. They're just them, their bike and the road and the mountains. So how has your evolution into an ultra-endurance racer, how does it feel now? Because you started off as a bike messenger, then you become round the world cycle tourist and then kind of evolving into this ultra-racer. Do you feel that that's the direction where you're going to go do you feel comfortable being an ultra racer is that is that who you've have you discovered the ultra racer within yourself and is or have you sort of dipped your toe in the water been there done that won the race got the t-shirt now actually that's not for me no it is for me definitely um but with some ambivalence because I'm still not sure about the the raw competition part of it and I think I enjoyed this a little bit more because by the end of the race there wasn't really any doubt that I was going to win and I could just relax and push myself and that was fine I think I'd find it a lot more stressful if there was someone you know up my nose all the time or I kept passing a competitor or something like that so next year I'll be trying to beat everyone and succeeding in beating some people hopefully but not everyone and that will be a bit a bit different but the process of doing it It's just what I love. I love being away from the bike, on the bike and hiding from the world and going through these countries and discovering things and being on the road and eating and sleeping and that whole lifestyle. And it just feels like more of what I've always been doing. And I seem to always want to be amplifying things and, you know, going bigger and better and faster and all of that. So in that sense, it was it was a logical progression. So we'll see. I mean, I definitely won't be doing RAM, I think, because part of what I love... That's the race across America. Yeah, and that's a supported race, so all you have to do is ride. Someone else does all the logistics and the fun stuff. And that's part of what I love. I love the whole, you know, managing, dealing with it, the the holistic element of it. So, yeah, there's definitely more to come. We'll just have to see. I'll be doing it next year. It's quite a new sport, 
ultra racing, uh, in cycling, in running, in, in other disciplines. And it's one where the traditional difference between men and women in sport is, is a little bit up for grabs, isn't it? That there are races that have been won by women against men, an open field. That's, yeah. that's quite interesting, isn't it? It's brilliant. I've been predicting for years that this would happen and it is finally happening. It's wonderful. So this year, um, there's a, a race that's part of RAM. It's kind of half of RAM. It's called the Race Across the, the West. So RAW is the acronym. And that was won by a woman. Just She beat everyone, including the men. And then there's the Trans Am Bike Race, which is across America, but longer and hillier and harder than RAM. And it's self-supported. So that's kind of like the transcontinental in America Exactly, yeah. The only difference being that it's a set route. And that was so exciting this year because the first um, the first half of it or more, a woman called Sarah Hammond from Australia was leading the race. And that was just amazing. Everybody was going crazy. And she eventually fell back a bit. She still got a top 10 position. But then the race was won out and out by Lael Wilcox, who set a new record on the Tour Divide the year before and is just the most stupendously good rider and there were three women in the top 10 and you look at that and think you can no longer argue that women need their own category or aren't as strong as men and I was actually quite disappointed that there weren't performances like that in the transcon and I'm trying to figure out why more women don't enter it because I think it's an amazing race I think it's the best there is and I want there to be more people like Sarah Hammond and Leo Wilcox and Juliana Boring you know fighting it out with the men and winning it. And so why do you think those traditional differences in achievement at the very top end of sport don't apply quite so clearly and obviously in ultra racing? I think because it's a different range of skills and it's also a broader range of skills. So you have to have strength and speed, but that's not all of it. You also have to have endurance and resilience and the ability to keep the same performance going day after day which is possibly something women are slightly better suited to, though obviously some of the men were doing quite well at that this year as well. But then there's also there's the, the strategy and the skill and the route planning and all of that, which I think is much less gendered. It's just about how your mind works and how much energy and you know, ingenuity you're willing to put into it. And also just experience, because I think the people who do well in races like this have a lot of experience. So Christoph, for example, has been cycling and racing and cycle touring and doing big mileage for years and years and years. And he knows all the roads and he knows his systems and he knows what works, what doesn't work. He knows his body, he knows his mind and he knows like he knows the limits of his own suffering and all of that. And I think that's why he does so well. I think it's just a combination of all of these marginal gains. And I think I am not Christoph, but I know that this year I did a lot better than I did last year because you just you learn from all the experience you have. Last year I learned a lot of valuable lessons in the race, although I didn't finish it. And since then I've been on my bike almost constantly and I've done a lot of different stuff this year that I've, I've learned from. So there's all of that as well. This race is not just about you stars at the front of the, the race, at the head of the race. There, there are a whole, there's a whole long tail um, that, that comes in over the sort of three weeks or so um, after, after the start. And you, you were very pleased to see the last riders cross the line as a dot watcher yourself. Yeah, that was, 
that was amazing. Um, so the last three riders in were this Italian pair, two guys, who I think apparently they are quite serious racers, but for some reason they'd done it at a touring pace. And this Taiwanese woman called Min, who I met at the start, and she... I think she didn't have a particularly good ride and I think she just was riding at her limit and her limit was just a bit lower than a lot of other people's. So she didn't do as well as she'd hoped. But she kept going and it was amazing because so many people would have scratched, I think. And I think, honestly, honestly, I admire her as much as anyone else who finished the race, including the top guys, because of her persistence. And she was, I think it was 28 days that they were out there doing 100 miles a day that's really really hard I mean the thought of doing that now for me I think is really really hard and they um they finished together the three of them I think the last couple of days they kind of hooked up and they were riding together and stopping for coffee together and staying in hotels and I was dot watching them you know across the border from Greece and down into Turkey and realizing yeah this gets obsessive very easily and thinking well when are they going to be at the ferry then they were on the ferry and you could see the dots on the ferry and then they started bouncing and I nearly cried I think I did cry a bit and I sent her a message to to say congratulations and she sounded really like she was tired but happy and I realised this is the end of the race. This lovely family that we've all been in for the past month, it's really over now. So it was an emotional moment. So that was Emily Chapel. Um, I thought it was quite interesting that she said that she wasn't really thinking about herself in terms of the women's race or there being a women's race and that she wanted to go for a top 10 finish next year and that there are these examples of, of women who are doing really, really well in these long-distance, unsupported, self-supported bike races. I think it's great, and I think, well, I hope in five, ten years' time we don't need to talk about it because everybody's just riding a race. You mentioned earlier in our, our chat the Tour Divide, um, which you won. Congratulations in some commanding style, I have to say, Mike. Um, a really dominant performance. Thanks, yeah. It seems a long, long time ago now. Um, what is the Tour Divide? The Tour Divide's a race from Banff in Alberta, Canada, to the Mexican border. And it's it's about 2,700 miles of forest roads, mountain biking, a little bit of pavement, so 80% off-road. And you came home in how long? It was just under 14 days. And that is, it's, a, it's a fixed course, so that is a, a new course record as well, as a, a, a personal best for you and a victory in the, in the race. So everything ticked the box. That's right. It's the third time I've done that, and it's the first time I actually got to ride the uh, official course proper because uh, it's such a long route going through so many different um, climates and... and uh, ecosystems that there's, there's almost certainly things that can go wrong at each point so sometimes the first year I did it there's a lot of snow in the north and a lot of the mountain passes were just uh, completely unpassable and then the second year that I did it it was um, forest fires in the south that blocked and, and a lot of the route the whole forest complex was on fire and we had to, to detour round so that denies you a, a proper crack at the at the full course and then of course you can't set a record on that course taking those big numbers um and breaking it down you were doing over 300 kilometers a day off-road on a mountain bike is that right in terms of averages that's what i seem to remember 
Yeah, I think the the average quoted was 194 miles, a point something a day. Which is phenomenal. I mean, that, I just don't understand. How do you go about covering that sort of distance off-road? I mean, what was your routine? How, how, how do you manage your time and, and how do you manage to go so fast, so far? Lots of naps and not a lot of sleep, uh, I think, really, is um, just using sleep to make yourself not drowsy. And, um, yeah, there are a few pinch points in there when I was really, really suffering with that. But um, So how long are your naps and, and how often do you take them? Well, for the first few days, I was I was just looking at getting there asleep for about an hour, hour and a half each night. And I know I could do that for about three nights before I really started to bite. From then on in, really, I'd get through into the afternoon and probably need to just 10 or 15 minutes just lie down when uh, when I didn't feel too good because you, you slow down so there's no there's no point in pushing past that you know if, if you go if you have a 10 minute nap you can be back on doing 15 miles an hour as opposed to 5 miles an hour so you get that time back really quickly um, so you just sort of like get through those periods where your where your rhythm comes down and, and you can't do anything and then an hour later you'd find that you're not even thinking about falling asleep or anything so those periods when it really hits you is just sort of staving it off really uh, I suppose and likewise at night you go into the night and you start to feel a little bit sleepy so I have a nap there just to get get that out of the way um, and then I'd ride through the middle of the night and then again when it when it's early hours of the morning when you really start to struggle to stay awake you have another nap there so you're sort of dividing your sleep up a little bit and, and what that means is you're never asleep for long enough to really properly cool down and get cold. Uh, so p- particularly as you come sort of south of of Wyoming, um, you're not having to really unpack a lot of your kit. Um, you can literally lie down on the side of the road and, and just have a nap in the sun or something. So you must have a pretty good alarm clock to uh, wake you up after these naps. Um, not Not especially good. But I, but I, th- I think there's, there's something in there's something in you when you're doing that 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 keeps you awake. You know, you never really fully switch off. I think. And how about food? What's the what's the food situation? Because if it's off road, you you haven't got you know your all night McDonald's like you've got on the uh, transcontinental race for some of the way at least. You, you do come into towns and things. Um, even if the gap between two towns is a hundred miles, then if you're doing 200 miles a day you'll likely see at least two towns um and uh for for me this year actually the the timing became quite crucial at a couple of points uh to to be in the right place at the right time and not miss the kitchen closing at a particular bar or a particular place The, the two particular incidents where i got i got into a place within 15 minutes of their of them closing and and I think in Pie, there's a place called Pie Town, uh, where they uh, they're quite famous for their pies. I had to buy two takeaway pies; they were full plate pies. Um, but had had I not got there, I would have been in a lot of trouble because there's there's 200 miles after that of the Gila Wilderness, where there is only really one um, vending machine for for drinks, um, and I would have been probably in, in a bit. I probably would have had to wait for them to open. How about water? Was there was there water along the way, or is it very dry? Do you have to carry a lot of water with you? 
there's a few sections of again the Gila Wilderness is probably the biggest stretch where it's it's just really really hot as well and everything's tinder dry in there it's it's forest but it's uh, it's, it's it's like desert conditions and uh, you need a lot of water um, and there's the Great Basin through Wyoming as well but I've and this is where the timing comes in as well if you I've managed to get the timing down to actually where we're going through that section in the night. So I've I've been through there with two litres of water and had more than a litre left at the at the end, and that's 140 miles of no water desert area. If you found yourself in the heat of the day in there, you could quite easily be drinking, you know, several more litres than that. And so, what are you thinking about as you're turning the pedals day after day after day on these dirt roads and tracks? Everything and nothing really. It's all the things you don't get time in life to think about any time or any other time. So it's. It's quite nice. Sometimes you just think about how much your hands hurt, and um, if you're going the right way, and if you're getting chased by bears or anything. But uh, no, most of the time you just kind of switch off, and it's quite therapeutic. And would it be a route that would be suitable for someone who didn't want to do it in 14 days, like you? Maybe 14 weeks, or uh, you know, a, a touring kind of route and, uh, on mountain bikes? Would is it a beautiful route? Because is it something that you recommend people to do um, as an adventure if they happen to be in that part of the world? Absolutely, a lot of people do, and the whole reason it was created by the um, uh, cycling Associ- the Adventure Cycling Association was um, as a as a guide. I think the book that was written on it was a sixty day route, and uh, you know even that's that's doing a fair chunk of mileage a day, fifty miles uh, or so. Um, and at, at that sort of pace, you get to spend time in, time in these kind of ex-gold mining villages and there's an awful lot of kind of the Midwest uh, history on, on show there and there's some, some beautiful expanses of, um, of, of wilderness and, and countryside there. And I think if you were doing it at that pace, you'd also probably feel like you were in a much wider um, environment as well because... If you're if you're going across the Great Basin and it's 140 miles and you actually stop for two nights in there and you carry all your water or something, you're having a bigger adventure than if you kind of blast through and you've done it. Um, and you know if you're taking a few days about it, you, you feel like you're out there disconnected for longer because, uh, like I say, we're probably seeing towns and people a lot, a lot more because you're hitting these places two or three times a day. It does seem as though the race gets a lot more attention than just the idea that you can do this and you can have a kind of experience and adventure as you describe you know riding across a desert however you do it is going to be an interesting um, exciting experience do you think that there's a danger that we're obsessing a little bit on the racing and not thinking about those other sides of of what you can do in terms of experiencing something different experiencing something adventurous something challenging um, something satisfying something that takes you out of your day-to-day life on a bicycle i think i think the excitement is that people always see that the excitement in a race i think we've we've been doing that for for decades and you know beyond i don't think that will ever really change but i don't think people will ever really stop doing things because they just want to do them as well Racing isn't the be-all and end-all of it. Um, for me, I like doing that because I can at the moment, and it's almost like window shopping for going back to places later. I, I get a, I get a big, bigger kick out of that at the moment than 
than than doing other things. But at the same time, I still get to see those places. So it's all right. It's not the same amount of time, but I'm still seeing it. You know, I'm not. I'm not. The red mist isn't down too much that I can't see what a nice place to do this is. And I'm not. I'm not racing around the velodrome uh, or anything, which is still exciting racing. Um, I'm, I'm. I'm still seeing the world change around me and open up the views and everything as I go. So I think what. What's striking is about that, though, is this, the two things are so similar in the the approach, but they that they they look as if they could be the same thing. But a race is still a race, and a tour is still a tour, and there'll always be there'll always be places for those things in people's minds and in the world for those two things to happen. But I wouldn't tell anyone who tours to go and race, and I wouldn't tell anyone who's racing that actually touring they're going to enjoy touring more. And so is is bike packing touring by another name? Uh, this has been a little bit debated um, by the people who care about these things. And there are some vo- quite vocal uh, advocates for the idea that bike packing, no, it's not touring, it's not lightweight touring, it's something qualitatively different. Is it just a rebranding exercise of, of, a, of cycle touring? It's probably got the same principles in mind from where cycle touring was coming from when it was happening, because... If you look at cycle touring, touring, actually the bike's quite lightweight. You can take a load of stuff and you can go pretty far in it, and that's uh, quite opens opens that up. And that's the same principles behind bike packing now, because actually bikes have moved an awful lot on from touring bikes. The race bikes have, have moved to very much lighter weight machines, and then when you like, go for a carbon gravel, you know, one of the new gravel bikes with a with a, a bigger tire on, and you, you find it you actually you can you can keep up with mountain bikers on the climbs off road and um and then you can you can still cover 100 miles or something like that so the capability of what these bikes can do is so much more than the touring bike could do on just on its own and then you take less luggage touring you're probably likely to take a tent and a stove uh so you're camping and the difference between camping and sleeping somewhere in a bivy bag for two hours is, or four hours is, is quite a difference in lifestyle because you're choosing not to take a stove. You're choosing the utility of having slept somewhere and you're not kind of making that all your little camp and your home. You're just sort of trying to pass the night somewhere and then you might go and do food in a different place or, um, or so on. I'd say there's a clear there's a clear difference in style, but in terms of the aims for the individual, I think there's the same mindset of what what you want to get out of it. Interesting. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how all this evolves because it definitely seems as though it's very much of the zeitgeist right now, um, which in my book is an excellent development. And um, will you be back? to ride you'll be clearly be putting another transcontinental race on next year will you be back to ride the tour divide or other races next year uh i think i've um sort of staved off the tour divide for a little while i don't think that's going to be back to really um compel me to to do that too soon um but i i definitely after a year out before that i've definitely got the the will to ride again and uh, I, don't, I don't see any particular aim to do more road or more mountain bike i just want to do more of everything so um. and will we see you race against christoph to see who is the the real champ at this stuff because that's what everyone's really asking 
Um, not in the transcontinental, I wouldn't say, because it's, it's is, yeah, it's your race. You can't you can't race it. But is there another race where you might go head to head, and who would win? I don't know. He's a teacher, so he he only races in the school holidays, and we we put the the race on at that time. So um, if if an opportunity comes up, it'll I mean it'll interest me because I I wouldn't be able to call it. You know, I think I'd really have to. Uh, I'd really have to have my work cut out against Christoph, but um, I wouldn't take it lying down either. So, <laughs> um, no, that that generally would be quite interesting for me. I think it would motivate me if I uh, if I got opportunity to race Christoph to really see what see what could be done. Are you listening, long distance adventure race organisers? Mike's up for it. Um, I'm sure Christoph is too. Well, thank you very much, Mike. We look forward to coming back to uh, hear more about the Transcontinental Race Number Five, 2017 edition, uh, from me, Jack Thurston. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. Someone is using his 